0: You shall not murder. Okay, that's the commandment for tonight. And we're going to spend a few moments unpacking these very uh, few words together. Four words, you shall not murder. And immediately I think, this is one command I can cope with. This is one command that I'm on top of, not a murderer. haven't done any murder, don't intend to. Maybe a lot of people have said that. But uh, it's important to see and remind ourselves that these commands in many ways are summaries of uh, a wider biblical teaching and uh, are uh, significant and important uh, to uh, see as umbrella truths uh, for the biblical teaching in this area. It's a very specific word, the word that's used here for murder, you shall not murder, Many of us grew up with an older version of uh, the Bible which said, you shall not kill, thou shalt not kill. And that was possibly uh, slightly misleading for us because it's a a very, fairly narrow and exclusive word that is used here and uh, it does refer to murder premeditated or uh, the taking of human life outside of a judicial Uh, context, outside of even uh, the reality of uh, what people would sometimes call a just war. So we're not dealing particularly with these things this evening. We're not dealing with the killing of animals. Uh, Many people would see it as a blanket uh, uh, command against prohibition, against any kind of killing Now, I'm not going to go into the morality or otherwise of killing animals, uh, but it's not primarily what this command is about. And uh, as one who has destroyed the life of several mice in the last few weeks, then uh, I'm quite glad that we're not going to be dealing with that particular issue this evening. The basic moral command is about the significance of human life. The value of human life. The uniqueness of human life as made in God's image and as precious and valuable and as something that we in and of ourselves have no right to become judge and jury over and take the life from others. And it's very significant command for us to think about this evening or any evening. Because as one of the commentaries I was reading on the Ten Commandments was saying, we live in a culture of death. That's the reality, isn't it? We live in a culture of death. We live in a culture where death is glorified in many ways. You just think of some of the films you watch, and I watch, and that we casually watch, where death and murder and vigilantism and brutality And the cheapness of human life is praised and glorified and uh, honored as something uh, worthy and something that makes you significant and important. But throughout life, uh, whether it's at an entertainment level or whether it's in uh, the, the natural level of the world in which we live, we live in a culture of death. You pick up any newspaper, look on any internet news site on any day, and there'll be lots more stories about death than there will be about life, and there'll be many stories about murder. And this command is uh, in the second table of the law, and it 's uh, exclusively uh, giving us uh, a, a set of a culture and a set of laws in relation to how we treat and act towards one another. And it's reminding us uh, and very much in the context of the command as well uh, of the the covenant and the command and the society in which the command was given uh, of God's place of justice and God's place of uh, enacting justice. It's a prohibition uh, against uh, premeditated murder. Acts of revenge and acts of hatred that reveal themselves in the taking of life. It's the, uh, it's the the natural end to hatred. It's the taking of life. And interestingly, right from the very beginning, that's been the case, hasn't it? That one of the very first acts of uh, the sinful outworking of uh, the rebellion between Adam and Eve was uh, Cain taking the life of Abel, so that uh, right from the beginning, this pattern was set in place where when God is rejected and when God is the author of life is rejected, then life becomes cheaper because we become the ones that are more important than other people and we don't respect and see them as being made in God's image. And uh, that image is hugely significant and God is here protecting the image of himself in mankind. And giving humanity intrinsic value because of who we are and who, in uh, whose image we are made, and as, as that is lost, as people reject God and as people reject that whole concept of being made in His image and reject the uniqueness of humanity and simply put us on a level or maybe a slightly higher level than animals, then it is no wonder we're living in a culture of death where life is cheap. And life is increasingly cheap uh, to people. So we have here for society and for the individual a protection. A protection for me, a protection for you, a protection for people. Because people are valuable in God's sight and because uh, it is the work of Satan to uh, bring uh, this hatred and division and uh, ultimately destruction of human life uh, through murder. It joins on us as Christians and uh, as people, this responsibility to protect life and to save life. Uh, The taking of life is God's prerogative. Now, there may be certain areas, great areas, uh, that may be a dangerous thing to say, but there's one or two areas that we will look at uh, together just for a moment. But it is God's place to take life. And it's God's place to give life. And uh, the reality is that sometimes humanity wants to take that role. And increasingly wants to take that role. Society wants to take that role. And so there's this this sense in which, uh, uh, in terms of law, in terms of uh, the normal outworking of society, in terms of the normal outworking of people living with people, uh, murder is prohibited by God. You shall not murder. No justification for going uh, down that road. It is a halter on the exponential outworking of sin and rebellion in society. Uh, Revenge, taking the law into our own hands, vigilantism, uh, taking life, is all um, banned and prohibited in this commandment that is given to us here. So within this commandment, there's different uh, prohibitions. But some of the different prohibitions that would be included uh, in this commandment, the first would be suicide. Suicide. Because suicide is self-murder. And uh, we recognize that as a sin against uh, God and a sin against the individual. It's sad. Ultimately, it's selfish. It's uh, uh, a denial of God's promises to help and to sustain. But we recognize that that particular act is often in the context of serious depression or mental illness, some unnatural trauma that has come into the life of someone. And uh, so the only thing that I would say about that, other than recognizing it uh, as a, a breaking of this command, is that it's not the unpardonable sin. For some reason, over the years in the church, and in certain church traditions anyway, that suicide has been regarded as the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. That is not biblical, and that is not what the Bible states. It's not the sin against the Holy Spirit that uh, is spoken of in the Bible. And uh, some great Christian figures have taken their own lives. It remains a sin, but not the unpardonable sin. And uh, I am assured that these people are in glory uh, as much as any of us will be in glory if our trust and reliance is in Jesus Christ for hope and salvation. But it therefore must also naturally extend to the whole concept of mercy killing or euthanasia again, a very emotive subject, very sensitive subject, very difficult subject, uh, but Christians and as Christians, we need to stress and stand against that whole direction that society is going in with respect to the taking of uh, the life of the elderly or the uh, the uh, ability of people to decide to die when they want to have uh, their own right to death which I guess at one level is the same as suicide but we recognise that a basic level fundamental level from this command that it is morally and ethically wrong to do so now there are some very difficult issues within that obviously for us and those in the medical profession will face some Uh, real uh, dilemmas and difficulties uh, in so doing. But we recognize as believers that pain and suffering ultimately is the result of sin. And the answer isn't death. The answer is Christ. So as believers we recognize that the answer to people's needs is not death in that situation, which is for them allegedly a great release, but the answer is Christ. Because death for them will not, if they are not Christians in that situation, will not bring them into a place of unbridled peace and uh, freedom from pain, but will bring them into a spiritual separation uh, from God. It's hugely significant as Christians that we remind ourselves and that we encourage others and uh, promote... um, The care of our terminal ill, if you're taking that as an example. To make that care as pleasant and as pain-free as possible. And, And we do look to support the work of the hospices in our nation. Because they do a fantastic work. A brilliant work. And if you haven't visited a hospice, go and visit one. They are bright, cheery, happy places. With dedicated staff, many of them not Christians, of course, but who are committed to making the final days of someone's life as pain-free and as pleasant as possible. And uh, that is the sign of a noble society. It's a sign of a, a caring society. Increasingly in societies where euthanasia and the right to die is allowed, for example, in the Netherlands, uh, it seems to be the case that more and more uh, the demand for uh, this uh, particular right comes from the families, not from the individual himself or her- herself. And that in itself uh, is putting an, uh, an unfair pressure on the families. It's putting a great burden on the individual to say, well, I'm obviously a great burden to my family. and I- I- Maybe I should just accept this uh, offer of-, of early death. And uh, the reality, of course, is that As we move further and further away from God, there becomes more and more reasons to to take uh, all manner of of different kinds of lives that move beyond this uh, mercy killing. So that any that are not economically viable or those who uh, are potentially insane or badly deformed or criminal may be at some point further down the line uh, those who are... Uh, not worthy of being kept alive. Now we recognize and know that uh, medical advance is such that uh, we can probably extend uh, the life of people beyond what is uh, actually uh, really life at all. Um, and that Christians need to be involved in the ethics and the discussions behind that and legislate for medical advance and Uh, recognize that uh, there are areas that are are grey and and difficult and throughout it all to be loving and sensitive and aware of the issues that are involved. So euthanasia is an issue Uh, as is premeditated murder and as is abortion. We're not allowed to talk about abortion today. It is a heinous crime to mention anything that would uh, uh, deny the right of a woman uh, to choose what to do with her own body, uh, what is best for that. The Bible is full of advice about protecting the most vulnerable and the most uh, needy and uh, the most uh, weak in society, none more so than the unborn child. And uh, we are complicit in our guilt uh, by our silence on this issue. Partly because uh, it maybe is a political football for many people. Partly because it is seen as harsh and oppressive uh, to feminism and the rights of uh, the woman and her body. But we need to recognize in the society in which we live that abortion is generally speaking birth control for many and it is the taking of life. And uh, we believe in the Bible's teaching that life uh, begins at conception in the womb, and that from that moment on, we do everything we can to protect that basic right to life. Because it isn't only the woman's body. there is more than just the woman's body at stake here. There is the body of a very small and very vulnerable and unprotected uh, human being. Now, I know in law that they're not human beings, uh, but uh, in God's uh, word and in our understanding of, uh, or in the understanding of medical ethicists that uh, uh, all that's required for human life is there from the very beginning. It does make us wonder how many millions will be in heaven from those who were aborted. But we give thanks and uh, we rejoice uh, that we can care for people who have been in that situation and again that it's not the unforgivable sin and uh, that we have a great concern for the rights and also for uh, the health and the well-being of mothers and uh, many uh, will struggle and battle uh, with guilt for many years uh, for having agreed to abortion and decided under pressure sometimes to have their child aborted and uh, we need to embrace them and remind them of the forgiveness of the gospel and of the grace of God uh, for them in their lives. So these are some of the uh, immediate um, applications of this commandment, "Do not murder," that is given to us here. But I want just briefly to expand that command uh, much more relevant—not maybe much more relevant, much more in a much more focused way to our own lives, because we've seen the pattern again, and again in the Old Testament, as it have the, the basic command of God. And in the New Testament, that is broadened and internalized and made more demanding uh, on us so that we all sit here and maybe the majority of us will have never murdered anyone. But we find that the New Testament uh, shines a deeper light onto us in our hearts because Christ makes clear that true Christian morality starts in our hearts. Because as we were singing before uh, we Uh, came to read this passage, he knows the motives and intentions of our heart, so the command is always more than just societal, it's more than just our outward behavior, and it's more than how we physically act towards one another uh, in a positive or negative way. But Christ deals with our motives, and nobody here uh, will find that their motives are perfect in this area. He envelops in this command hatred and revenge. Take one or two passages from the New Testament, Matthew five twenty one. You have heard it long ago, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be subject to judgment. Titus 3, 3. We lived, looking at our pre-Christian lives, in envy and malice, being hated and hating one another, but when the love and kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us from this. Galatians 5.19 The acts of the sinful nature are hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition. 1 John 4.20 where we read we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. So we find that there's this this great extension towards the command, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, it murder, uh, into our motives and the attitudes and intentions of our hearts, uh, in the recognition that it, this is where murder comes from. And remember so much murder, uh, is not, um, even in society today, I, I'm not sure on percentages, but the percentage is very high that murder is, is connected to families and committed to people close to you. Uh, and it stems from these close relationships It's not often random at that level. And so it stems from this undealt with hatred, bitterness, jealousy, anger, envy that's in our hearts. And God is saying you can't tolerate that. You can't allow that to fester because it will manifest itself uh, in a much worse way, but also... in and of itself, is destructive to who you are and what you are. And bitterness and hatred will eat at your heart and destroy you as a Christian. And it's just as reprehensible and just as condemnatory at one level in God's eyes uh, than murder itself. And that is hugely significant. Um, I was reading a book today. It's it's an excellent book, um, particular for any of you here, any of the pastors here. Uh, or people thinking about ministry, it's um, called Dangerous Calling. And it's by a guy, Paul David Tripp, uh, who is one of the guys that, uh, whose books we're using for our own elders' training. And uh, he says uh, some very interesting things about anger in his own life and in his own heart. And it uh, almost destroyed his marriage as a pastor and destroyed his ministry. He says at one point, There's a, there was a huge disconnect between my private persona and my public ministry life. The irritable and impatient man at home was a very different guy from the gracious and patient pastor our congregation saw in those public ministry and worship settings where they encountered me most. I didn't see the spiritual schizophrenia that personal ministry life had become. So here's a guy who had a a massive change in his life when he began to realize that uh, he was angry. He was angry with his wife. He was angry with his congregation. He was angry with his family. He was impatient with them at home. And then he was going out to do this great public ministry. And yet his whole life was imploding uh, and his relationships were imploding because he wasn't dealing with these things. And the reminder to us is our great need you, do you think tonight you don't need Christ in your everyday living? That Christ is the insurance policy for the future but you don't recognize that these commands expose his light in the darkness of our hearts and the ongoing need we have for Jesus because we're angry people if we're not some of the other ones that we'll come to see in future weeks like lustful and covetous and everything else. This this danger of outward adherence only. That we're nice on the outside. That we put on a persona or a face. But that we are privately free to hate one another. And we relish that. And we enjoy that. Because it makes us feel good about ourselves. But we have a, a festering uh, uh, anger uh, towards other people. Sometimes towards God. Uh, towards our wives, towards our husbands, towards our children and we are irritable, we are careless, we are short we are full of temper and uh, we will see it sometimes in uh, the way we drive, in the way we respond if, if people come late, We way we work on the football field, a whole lot of different, well, the sports field generally speaking about myself, football field But you remember these things and you realize that God has come to heal these things in our hearts and to deal with these sins which separate us from Him and from one another. You know, we will, we will all casually speak about how much we love one another as Christians. And we will in this, almost in the same breath, absolutely tear one another apart with ease. We will find fault. We will be angry and we will be critical because we aren't dealing with the reality of our need and of our sinfulness and the destruction that it causes and the division. that Remember what Satan has come to do. Divide and destroy and separate. That's his work. God says he is love and love means life and life means unity and so kind of a, a, a cooperative Uh, community Christian living isn't a kind of fanciful, hippie ideal. It's not something for soft-hearted Christians. It's at the very core of the gospel that we recognize that we deal with the divisions that so naturally and so easily come between us because it is Satan's work to destroy and to separate and to divide. And we will so quickly do it in the name of God. Splits in churches, divisions over theology, separations because we can't agree with one another. But God's always on our side and justifies our anger, our hatred, or our divisive attitude towards one another. And yet he reminds us here, and in these verses of envy and malice and being hated and hating one another, and discord, and jealousy, and fits of rage. see So many sins um, revolve around uh, or or end up encouraging anger within us and uh, separation. And Christ makes that demand out of love for us that we need to be changed, not from the outside in. You don't come and get correct on the outside and then think of coming to Christ to deal with your heart. It's from the heart out that we need changed. We need to repent of the anger and the bitterness and the selfishness and the pride and the frustration and the impatience that we have with others because it's all about us being on the throne. It's all about people not meeting my needs and people not being the center of my existence. Clean from the inside out. Dealing with our intentions. Can you deal with your intentions? Can I? Can I deal with my motives? Not really. I can't do that. That's too deep. That's why I need a saviour. That's why uh, the gospel goes beyond the need. outward look and goes into the motives and intentions of our heart because that is what the commands expose. They expose our need of Christ. It's impossible to obey these commands without a new heart. And without recognizing the only one who can obey them for us is Jesus Christ who has died because he is taking our guilt on his place. With his energy and with his spirit, we can uh, seek to fulfill his commands out of gratitude and out of grace. But every day we see there's motives that need to be dealt with. Every day in the kitchen. In, on the bus. In your first hour at work tomorrow. These are the places where your Christianity will be tested. Not in here. It's easy in here. It will be out there. It will be, you know, in, in the living room of our lives. Where we will see the need for Christ. And where we'll see the need for guarding our hearts and guarding uh, our minds and dealing with these things so that maybe even we think a bit more for example about the films we watch and the violences the violence that they expo- expose and uh, espouse so much we take that um, and I've you know just thought about it for myself how easily and how, how readily I would watch films like that and justify it but um, but we live in a culture of death and we need to think about living in the light and what that means and what that means for the way we spend our time and the way we speak to one another, whether our speech is violent and aggressive and angry and divisive and recognize our need for Christ and for his grace every day, so the commands of God and and this one is no different from others um, apart from being uh, moral parameters for our lives and uh, guidance for uh, how to outwork our living as Christians, seeing into the heart and the motive, they're also our schoolmasters, are they not, that lead us to Christ. Because Christ is the only one who fulfills them. And Christ is the one that we need to forgive us for constantly breaking them. I like the idea of a weak and vulnerable people who are strong in Christ. Luther speaks of Jesus and says he was his patience and his gentleness and his kindness and his peaceableness and his purity and of all things a sweet and friendly heart without anger, hate, bitterness towards any even his enemies. That's what marked Jesus out. And he is our saviour and our Lord. And if we are angry and if we are bitter, we need to fall on our knees and look for forgiveness because we're as surely breaking this command as someone who's on death row. Amen. Let's bow our heads briefly in prayer. Father God, help us to understand your commands and to apply them to our hearts. Forgive us when uh, we casually put them aside and forgive us when we happily fester uh, and uh, allow a boiling rage and dissatisfaction with you and with your grace and with the peace you offer. uh, Destroy us from the inside out so that we uh, are alienating ourselves from you and from our fellow human being. Forgive us when we justify our anger and our irritableness uh, by pointing out the faults of others as if it's their problem. And may we be honest and open in dealing with our weakness and our anger and our sin before you. Remind us of your outstanding grace. Remind us of your absolute right to remain eternally angry with us in your justice and in that settled wrath against sin in our hearts which condemns us, but in your amazing love that you have provided a solution and are the author, as we saw this morning, and the finisher of our faith, that you will forgive us and uh, that you will transform us. And as we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We thank you for that. Bless uh, our thoughts in your word and where we are convicted, may we come to you for forgiveness. Where we are short-tempered and angry, may we seek uh, your grace and also understand why sometimes that happens. Give us the wisdom to know for any who are grieving over unborn, lost unborn children. Give them peace and give them forgiveness. And we ask and pray that you would guide us in the moral um, uh, difficulties of this, of the advances of medicine today that leave issues sometimes just not clear cut. But help us always to deal with with this knowledge of the sanctity of life and the value of life as being a reflection of the image of God that we possess. And we pray for our friends who don't know you that they will come to know Jesus. Amen.